This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Amen, amen. Well, good morning, Redemption Tempe. Amen, amen. My name is Will Gann. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I've been assigned the task of preaching the last message of this year. Um, I had the same assignment last year. Um, I think they're having a problem scheduling people, and I'm like the only guy available, but (laughs) I will take it as a blessing. Um, And uh, this is a very personal letter. It is Paul's most personal. Uh, It's a very personal letter to me. Um, As I read through it, uh, it touched my heart. These truths jumped off the page. So if you would join me in prayer as we ask God for a special blessing this morning and to be my help this morning. Amen? Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, We thank you so much, Lord, for this past year, the ups and downs, the ins and outs. And Father God, as we think about what this year has meant to us and going into the new year, I pray that our hearts would be turned towards you to maybe look at a perspective on our lives that we may not have considered. I pray, Lord, that you speak to me. Your servant is listening. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do you measure a year? Whether it's good or whether it's bad, how how do you measure it? Uh, Sometimes we look at uh, all the bad things that happen, and if they outweigh the good things, then we say we had a bad year. Or if the good things outweigh the bad things, we say we had a good year. But that's not how God measures a year. We know from Romans 8.28 that all things work for good. And what that means is, he says all things. So that means that God takes the good and the bad and he puts them in a big pot and it all comes out good. He doesn't have that, uh, that idea that they're the good things and the bad things and he puts them on the scale. No, God is control. God is sovereign. And he says, I work all things for good. This was an interesting year for me. Um, I'm on the prayer team here after most messages. I pray for folks and um, this year was a unique year for me. I prayed for a family and God healed her mother. Prayed for another family and prayed for the salvation of one of their siblings and and God chose to save him and change his heart and he comes to the church now. He's on fire for the Lord. I had some very impactful things happen in my life. God moved in a very powerful way. But I also lost my job this year. I was very ill this year uh, to the point where I thought I was going to die. How do you measure a year? I think sometimes you have to look at God's mission and the church. How well did you press into that? 
Today we're going to talk about this idea of koinonia, and I'll define that in a moment. And I want you to think about how well you pressed into this idea of koinonia that is worked out and expressed in the book of Philemon. So let's get started. First, the backstory. Okay, the book of Philemon is the shortest letter from the pen of the apostle Paul, but it's the most explosive. This backstory is Philemon becomes a Christian. That's alluded to in verse 19. And Philemon and Epaphras, they start a church in Philemon's home. That church is the church of Colossae. You may recognize that name. The the letter to the Colossians was actually delivered at the same time as Philemon. The story goes that Philemon and Epaphras start a church in Philemon's home. We see that in verse 12 as well as Colossians chapter 1 verse 7. Onesimus was a slave uh, owned by Philemon. And Onesimus runs away. Now, we don't know if if when he ran away, he stole money or if he himself was the property that left. But either way, he was wrong. He wronged Philemon and he took property. Now, we believe that Onesimus makes his way to Rome, where he runs into the Apostle Paul and becomes a Christian. So, That's the backdrop. That's the backstory. The whole purpose of this book, though, is to get Philemon to forgive Onesimus and embrace him as a brother. Okay? That's the the whole purpose is to get Philemon to forgive Onesimus and embrace him as a brother. Now, there's something undergirding the command to forgive. And that, that idea that's undergirding this idea of forgiveness is this idea of koinonia. And my points today is we're going to be looking at this idea of belonging or koinonia through the lens of the Apostle Paul, through the lens of Onesimus, and lastly, through the lens of Philemon. First, we'll start with Paul and koinonia. In verses 1 through 7, and I'll read it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If it's not on the screen, this is what it says. It says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith, that word sharing, koinonia, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This is what Paul is saying, that real faith and love will inevitably result in a concern for fellowship. Now, I remember when I first read this, I thought that Paul was flattering Philemon, because he had this big ask, right? So I'm flattering you, Philemon, because I've got something really serious that I'm going to ask you that you're probably not going to want to do. But that's not what's happening at all. What Paul is doing is he's, he's bringing out 
that Philemon, not only does the body of Christ know you're a believer, but the word on the street is that you're a Christian. It's made it all the way to Rome that your faith is, is effective and it's changing the world. So Philemon, I'm establishing this because when I get to what I'm going to ask you, I'm not just asking you as a person. I'm asking you as a believer with a, a, a faith that is, that is known to everyone. Do you get that? So for us as believers, people should see the validity of our faith. It should be evident. And when your faith is evident, there are expectations put on you. Not only by the people that are around you, but expectations put on you by the Lord Jesus Christ. Philemon, you are a believer. You're a true believer, and we see it. And it should cause us to care about others. That concern for fellowship was also a motivation for Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And here's the key. Failing to do so would lead to a rift in the fellowship since Onesimus was now a believer. By forgiving Onesimus, Philemon would maintain the harmony, peace, and the unity of the Colossian church. See, Philemon was high profile, and so was Onesimus. And so people had expectations of how they should behave. If you're a true Christian, how should you behave? The idea of fellowship in verse 6 is best translated as koinonia. In some of your Bibles, it may be sharing, but the idea is this word koinonia. Now, koinonia uh, translated as fellowship or sharing. It's difficult to translate precisely in English. I, I like to liken it to um, the Hebrew word shalom, right, which is a rich word, right? It just means more than peace. Koinonia is the same way. It's usually translated fellowship, but it means much more than merely enjoying each other's company. It refers to, listen, a mutual sharing of all of life and could be translated belonging. Believers belong to each other in a mutual partnership produced by their faith in Christ. You serve and love and forgive for the sake of Christ. Okay, so, so this is what koinonia is. Koinonia doesn't have as much to do with you and I as it has to do with Jesus. You understand? Koinonia is a gift to the church that was one that was secured at the cross. So you do this koinonia, this fellowship, this sharing because of what Jesus accomplished at the cross. In 1 Peter, verses 10 and 11, it says this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. 
Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In this text in 1 Peter, he's talking about the service that we have to one another. He's talking about the gifts that he's given to the church. And then he says, and we do that so that God may be glorified. We don't do it and work hard to be nice. We do it because it glorifies God and it's who we are. As I thought about koinonia, I thought about how I, how effective I was as, in, as this idea of belonging and being a part of and being one with you, my brothers and sisters. That's the measure, right? How well did I press into loving the body Sacrificially serving the body. Koinonia, being a part of your life. Not just standing here and preaching. Not just showing up and serving when it's convenient. But how am I in sacrificially giving my life to you? Because it mirrors the sacrificial life that was given to me. See, Jesus came and lived and died and rose again so that we could have these seats in this room. These are very expensive seats. You think Taylor Swift seats are expensive? Or Beyonce? These seats cost our Lord and Savior his life. So that you can be here so you can belong to one another, not just attend a service. It's about belonging. I love God's people more and more. The longer I'm alive, the more I love his people. So probably the day that I die, I'm gonna probably love you all the most, right? I'm gonna hate leaving. But this is something I think the church really needs to get. As we work through this a little bit more, you're gonna see why it has even more importance than what I've already stated. So now we're gonna press into Onesimus and Koinonia. In verses eight through 12, it says this. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for, listen, listen to the words he uses. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. 
I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, I just want to point out a few things here. First, when the Bible speaks about relationships that we should have, it, it many times it speaks in the terms of family because we understand family. Now, some of us may not have had loving parents or loving siblings but we understand the picture, right? So when, he, when we talk about brothers and sisters, that's just not a term that's flippant. The Bible wants you to understand that these terms were meant to be loving terms. I have a brother. My brother and I are very, very close. I actually got to see him. And my brother was a very strong athlete, college wrestler, football player. And right now, he's got really bad hips, and he's walking with a cane and a walker. When I saw my brother, I wept, because I remember what he was like. But I wept because I love him so much, and that there's a oneness that we have with each other. When Paul talks about being a son and being a father, we understand what that relationship is like. These aren't terms that, this isn't a club. This isn't just a group of people that come together. We have been chosen before the foundation of the world, each and every one of you, to be here. But I want us to just take a moment and put on our supernatural VRs for a moment. Because this conversation is not recorded in the text. This is the conversation between Paul and Onesimus. It's not recorded. But I would imagine that it went something like this. Onesimus, I need to talk to you. Yeah, Paul, how can I help you? Onesimus, you need to go back. Go back where? You need to go back to Colossae. But, but Paul, don't you know I, I was a slave in, in Colossae and, and I escaped? That's how I got to Rome? Paul, what do you mean I need to go back? Onesimus, you need to go back for Christ's sake. Because we as believers obey the law, Romans 13. And the law says that in this stage, you are the property of Philemon, and you took his property, Onesimus, you need to go back. Onesimus, you need to go back because 
the fellowship was shaken. And you need to go back and make it right. You need to allow Philemon to forgive you. You need to make it right, Onesimus. I don't know about you, but that had to be a hard conversation. Paul, you can see in the language of the text that he cared for Onesimus. He loved Onesimus. And now he's sending Onesimus back to the place where he escaped from. And I would imagine the spirit of God moving on Onesimus. And Onesimus saying, okay, Paul, I'll go back for Christ's sake. But Paul didn't leave it there. Because now when you see, and we'll get to this in a moment, the text. Paul was an advocate for Onesimus. Paul was one with Onesimus. He knew the fear. He knew the danger. And I don't know if you know the danger, but because of the laws back then, Philemon had the right to do whatever he wanted to Onesimus. He could put him in prison. He could have him killed. He could have him beaten. Paul knew that and still asked him to go back. Why should he go back? For the sake of unity. We see that in Ephesians 4, 3, where we don't strive for unity. We maintain the unity that Christ secured for us. The unity that we have, we we don't try to be more unified. We have unity. We are unified around the person and work of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, and all we do is maintain it. How do we maintain it? By forgiving one another, by loving one another, by belonging to one another. We maintain unity. And it's somewhere in this conversation, Paul probably said something to the effect of this to Onesimus. Onesimus, I've had a lot of hard things happen to me. I've had some good things happen to me. But this I learned, Onesimus, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can do it, Onesimus, and I'll help. Onesimus must return because of what Christ has done for him. You see, in our Christian life, if you're never having to do hard things for the Lord, you're missing something. God calls us to do hard things. He calls us to hard places. He calls us to love hard people. He causes us to give when our resources may not be where we want them to be. He causes us to humble ourselves in situations where our pride is telling us to be puffed up. God calls us to do hard things. I've been a a part of churches for a long time. And I'm going to tell you this. There are many times where people will say, sure, I'll serve. 
I'll serve. I want to serve the Lord. Okay, let's put you on the schedule. When can you serve? Well, I can serve, um, I only can serve the third Thursday of the month between the hours of 9 and 12. But that's sometimes. Most of the time, I can only serve between 9 and 10. Can you squeeze me in there? God calls us to do hard things. He calls us, he wants our schedule to be his schedule. Our life is his life. His life is our life. Onesimus, you have to go back. Lastly, Philemon and Koinonia. Verses 9 to 12. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you. I'm sending my very heart. I tried to emphasize the language here. Paul is advocating for someone that he loves. Have you ever advocated for someone that you love? I believe many of you have, but that should be our normal, regular experience here, right? We support one another. We care for one another. We counsel one another. We walk with one another. He says, receive Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother in the Lord. That is unheard of. Now, there are many people who talk about slavery in the Bible, this passage is incredible. Because what it tells us is that, yes, slavery was an established system in the scriptures. But for Christians, we treat each other as brothers and sisters. If that were the case, the back of slavery would have been broken in mostly all cultures. Because we understand what? That we are all image bearers of God. And when we become Christians, when we become believers, we become one with one another. No longer treating others as below us or beneath us, but we treat them as brothers. I think he alluded to this in Colossians. I said the letter was written at the same time and sent. In Colossians, oh, you remember. In God's new family, people are not Greek or Jewish, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, but Messiah is all in all and in all. That's the relationship that we have with each other. But why should Philemon forgive? We've established it, we belong to one another. 
We establish it because Paul is exhorting him to do it. But I would challenge us to see the forgiveness of Philemon not out of fear or compulsion, because we know the passage, our mind goes there, that that those who are forgiven much forgive much. We understand that. And if you don't forgive your brother, God won't forgive you, right? We get that. But that's not what Paul is pressing into here. He's saying you should forgive and that should, forgiveness should flow out of love for your brother, but more importantly, your love for God. I would challenge us to say many times we struggle with belonging, not because we don't love each other enough, but because we don't love God enough. Because if we loved God the way the scriptures say we should love them. Our lives would look different. Our relationships would look different because he changes our desires and he becomes our prize. In Jesus' prayer in John 17, says this. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. When I came to Arizona, I was engaged to now my wife, Doreen. And part of my courting process was I wrote poetry, and it wasn't that good. Um, But I knew she would like it. And I remember I was trying to find some subject matter, and I was looking in the scriptures, and I went to Genesis, and the one flesh, and leave and cleave, and I'm studying that, and cleave is like cleaver, and I'm like, "Ah, that's that's not beautiful. But I got it. I understood it. But when I got to John 17, I thought that these were the most beautiful words I've ever read as it relates to oneness. That I was about to enter into a relationship. And this relationship looked like this. That we would be one I in you and you in me. I just thought that was just so beautiful that the Apostle John was saying there is this love relationship that is so intimate, that is so tight, that the person actually, two people actually become one person. One person in in the way that they love, their desires, the way that they see the world, their motivations. It's, It's one, it's hard to separate them because the picture is that that's the way Jesus and the Father relate to one another. And what he's saying is, when we have that kind of relationship, 
that I and, and me and, and, and she and me and we together, that it pictures the Godhead, that they would become perfectly one. And then that per- perfection of oneness becomes unapologetic to the world. It's not your Bible studies. It's not your crosses that you wear, your tattoos, or even coming to church. When we love each other the way that God calls us to love each other, it says the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. It is the apologetic that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he is the Messiah. Our loving one another is what expresses that to the world. That's amazing. I don't think about loving you as an apologetic to the person of Jesus Christ. That's not the first thing that comes to my mind, but it is. There's something tangible that people can, can pick up on when we love one another the way we, love, we should love one another. When they come into this service, there's something tangible that, that tells them, these are unbelievers, that Jesus is real, that he is who he says he is, and he did what he said that the Bible says he's done. I love that. That's my motivation for loving you. And when I love God enough to where I want to make him real, I want to make him known, how I do that is in loving you. And it's you do that in loving me and loving each other. Just a couple takeaways and I'll take my seat. This idea of koinonia, it starts with us being equal before God, sharing in the same need for forgiveness. That's what puts me, it doesn't matter how smart you are, how good looking you are, or what kind of job you have. Guess what? you have the same need of forgiveness as I do. That puts us on equal footing. It doesn't matter what you do, who you are, you needed the same blood of Jesus that I needed. That puts us on equal footing. I can't think I'm better than you. You can't think you're better than me because we're both sinners in need of grace. The other thing, as I mentioned this before, is in Colossians 3.11. In God's new family, there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, but the Messiah is in all and is in all. This is what that means. Each one of these couplets and their couplets had an issue with each other. The Greeks thought they were better than the Jews. The circumcised thought they were better than the uncircumcised. The free men thought they were better than the slaves. 
What this text is telling us, that in God's new economy, that he removes these oughts that we have between one another that are there. He destroys them. And because of the Messiah, he is in all of us. And he is everything to us. And the last thing I want to leave you with is God was reconciling the world in the Messiah to himself, not counting our sins against us. Now, don't move past that too quickly. God was reconciling the world. We are reconciled to one another. This is another truth that I think we miss sometimes. We were brought together. There was a price paid for us to come together. I mentioned this earlier. This is the dream team. Greater than any other dream team that was ever assembled. His church. We were reconciled in the Messiah to himself. And how he could do that is he didn't count our sins against us. There's a song we sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Why? Because sin has left a crimson stain and he washed us white as snow. That's all of our experience. We've all, if you're a Christian, you have been washed by the blood of Jesus. This is what he was trying to get Philemon to understand. Philemon, forgive your brother. Because you share an inheritance with him. Philemon, forgive your brother because you need to maintain the unity in the church. Philemon, forgive your brother if you love Jesus. Do it for his sake. How do we measure a year? How well did you press into Koinonia this year? I think I did a little better than last year, but not as well as I should have. When I was in my uh, darkest time this year, I thought I was going to die. I lost 30 pounds in about three weeks. I could barely walk down a flight of stairs. I couldn't eat. I've, I've been to hospice, and I've seen people who are transitioning. That's what happens. And I was scared for a moment. And then my friend, who understood Koinonia, wrote this to me. As you know, you've been with me and seen me endure many trials. Almost losing my leg in high school, charged with plagiarism in college, a leave of absence in medical school, academic probation, racism, depression, people who tried to destroy me, witchcraft, infidelity, false prophets, a filed divorce, almost losing my son in a tragic accident, 
a deployment, and cancer. You guys have been instrumental in helping me find the true and living God. I will never forget this. I thought I was helping you, but you guys helped me and my wife through one of the toughest and darkest periods. Keep your head up. Remember your personal psalms. Thanks for being my friend. Koinonia. You see, koinonia isn't something that you necessarily need when everything is going good. It's how God undergirds you and ministers to you when you need it the most. And when you're a part of a community that that is their identifier, that's what they're known for, is loving each other when they need love the most, it shows the world that Jesus is who he says he is, and he's accomplished what he says he's accomplished. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to minister to these people I love. I thank you, Lord, for being our God and for changing us and loving us even when we weren't in love with you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his righteousness. We thank you for his cleansing. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us together in this body that we are able to love one another in a way that proves your reality. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Here at Redemption Tempe, we respond in four ways singing, with taking communion, with giving, and with prayer, I ask that you would participate in our response. Amen. Amen.